Imagine a world where humanity pursued unity over division. Imagine a world where humanity acknowledged the oneness of everything in the universe. Imagine a world where humanity chose love and light over everything else. It's not my credit to take explorers of the stories of people from all walks of life who seek to uplift humanity and restore Christ consciousness on this planet. Their unique journeys of tapping into their gifts, talents, and the infinite consciousness are amazing, and their willingness to share them to wake up humanity to their true essence and potential is even more remarkable. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be inspired. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, and welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Hey there, Marcus. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Ed. Thanks for being here. My guest today is Marcus Watson. Marcus is the pastor of Mount Soledad Presbyterian Church in San Diego, California. He's also the host of the Spiritual Life and Leadership Podcast, the official podcast for Fuller Theological Seminary's Church Leadership Institute. And in 2021, he released his first book, Beyond Thingification, Helping Your Church Engage in God's Mission which helps churches and leaders more fully participate in God's mission in the world. Marcus, welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about you and how you ended up where you are in your life. Oh, boy, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> you have the, the big, small, medium, or large story <laughs> in terms of where I ended up. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that up to you. I'll give well, you the space to be able to to, to be able to share. Okay. Well, um, let me just start with small. So I met uh, pastor, interim pastor, actually, uh, though it it may be a while that I'm there. Um, uh, so at Mount Soledad Presbyterian Church, which is a great church in uh, San Diego here, and came there. Not I wouldn't call it reluctantly, but um, I wasn't looking for something new. Um, I did know the pastor who had been there before me. And so he, he retired and he said, hey, you should apply for this position. And um, so I did. And after a couple of conversations, I felt like, yeah, maybe this is where God wants me to go. I will say part of the reason I felt like I needed to say yes to this particular church was because I had become kind of comfortable at my last church. We, you know, we found a good rhythm, good routine, but I wasn't stretching myself uh, anymore. It felt like. So anyway, so I'm really glad to be there. That's where I am. Do you want more backstory? There's a lot, a lot of backstory. <laughs> you have, you have an interesting backstory from yeah. our previous conversation that I was hoping you could share and yeah. really kind of get into some of the details of that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I've been a pastor for maybe 20 years now. Um, and I had been uh, at a church uh, also here in San Diego. I came here in 2007. It was not my first church, but um, yeah, I came here in 2007. And it was great for uh, most of the eight and a half years that I was there. Good people, you know, got along with everyone, did good ministry in the neighborhood. Um, and then the last year was really, really tough. One day I got a call from our executive presbyter, um, who's kind of the leader of the regional presbytery here in San Diego, asking if he could meet with me like that, that next day, I think it was, or yeah, it was that next day on a Saturday. And uh, I was on sabbatical actually at the time, about two weeks into a sabbatical. And I was like, oh no, sorry, I'm not available. And um, he kept pressing me 
wanting to meet with me and wouldn't tell me what it was about, which is a little bit frustrating, but I did eventually meet with him. He and my wife met with him and one other person. And basically what he said was that uh, someone has accused you of having a problem with pornography. And um, I was like, oh, okay. Now, full disclosure, have I ever looked at pornography? Yes. But um, it's also very important to me not to. So I've been in an accountability relationship for a long time, accountability software on all my devices. Uh, and so I wasn't really worried about this. Um, I said, what do you need? He's, uh, you know, do you want my laptop? Um, he said, that would be good. And so I gave him the laptop right away. And I was asked, you know, I asked him what, what they were going to do with it. He said, well, we're going to have a forensic analyst look at it. So they, uh, they did, said it would take about three days, ended up taking three weeks, which was very frustrating to me because, um, <clears throat> well, because I didn't know what was really going on. And then after those three weeks, finally, he called me and he said, well, I have your laptop. Uh, or no, I, he said, um, he said the, the um, analysis is complete, but I can't give you your laptop back because it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And um, I was very frustrated in part because, partly because of what was happening, but also partly because they weren't following the process that's outlined in the book of order. So anyway, there's a lot of technicalities there, but basically the person who made the accusation didn't want to file formal allegations, which if they had, they would have kicked off, you know, the process. And because they didn't file formal allegations, they decided, well, we should still investigate this. So they kind of came up with their own process, which left me very unprotected. And it was, it was frustrating. And that led to a really, really dark time for me because I didn't know what they found. Of course, the accusation is pornography and the fear is child pornography. Now, I know I've never looked at child pornography, right? But your mind starts you know, going is like, did some virus put something there? You know, did something somehow end up there? Did our tech person who was a little bit of an antagonist at that point, did he put something on my computer? Or maybe it's not that maybe it's like, I don't know, somehow bomb making instructions got on my computer or something. I don't know. You know, I just didn't know. And so, um, it was, it was very, very frustrating. And I was, I felt very, very scared. Now, through this two, three months, roughly, uh, of this kind of under-the-table investigation that was taking place, I had some, some points of light, so to speak. One of them was a friend of mine who's also a pastor. He was also my accountability partner. And he really went to bat for me in ways that I couldn't go to bat for myself. You know, he wrote emails on my behalf. He had meetings. He made phone calls. And he would sort of check in on me, sort of just as a friend, right? And take me out to dinner every now and then. And I remember driving home from uh, one of our, our times together in the evening. And um, I just kind of said to God, man, why is, why is he doing this? You know, he doesn't have to do this. Uh, it takes energy, it takes time. And all of a sudden, I had this little epiphany, you know, where I was like, oh, I have this sense that I don't deserve to be loved, you know, they're, they're just one of these things that I kind of carried with me from wherever, you know, in my childhood or whatever, teenage years. And so I was like, I, I have to unlearn this. And I also realized that these, the way this investigation was being handled 
was sort of hitting me at that point of you don't deserve to be loved because we're not going to follow the rules when it comes to you. You know, um, we're going to kind of do our own thing. And, and so, uh, the very next day I went to the beach and, um, I just sort of sat there and for two or three hours I was, well, so I was sitting on a surfboard. I'm not very good at surfing, but I like to do it sometimes, although it's been bef since before COVID. <laughs> so I need to do that again. But, um, I was just sitting on a surfboard. I don't think I caught any waves that day, but I just sat there and I was just saying, Lord, I deserve your love, you know? And I, and I had this realization that whenever I would ask God to forgive me for something, uh, I would say, Lord, I'm so sorry for da-da-da-da. Please forgive me. I don't deserve your love. And I would always say that. And I was like, wow, wow, why am I saying that, right? Now, not that I've, I deserve in the sense that I've earned God's love, but I am certainly worthy of God's love. And so that was one of those things that came to life for me in that moment. Then I realized I also have the sense that I feel like I don't deserve to be loved by people in general. Now, I believe that I did, but I, it's like this inner, inner thing, right? And so I just started repeating, Lord, I deserve to be loved. Lord, I deserve to be loved over and over again. Um, and that was a transformative moment for me. A couple other things that happened during that time. I had a, a meeting with an attorney because I didn't know what to do. And someone said, you should talk to a lawyer about what's going on. So I did. Turns out that she had a lot of experience with child pornography. I didn't know this. And so she was asking me lots of questions and kind of painting a very bleak picture of what could happen. You know, well, if it looks like you're guilty, you know, they're probably going to knock on your door, bang on your door at four in the morning and get you out of bed and, you know, take you to the jail and then you'll have to call me, you know, and all this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. After about an hour of talking with her, she finally goes, well, I can tell you're not guilty. I was like, you can? How, how can you tell? She goes, well, you're not asking the right questions. If you were guilty, you'd be asking questions like, what's our defense going to be? How much time am I looking at? And you're just asking about when you can get your laptop back. I was like, oh, and it was just like this weight lifted off of me. I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. Somebody can see right through all the BS here. Somebody can see the truth. And um, that was that was a gift. And then one other really big moment, and and this moment was sort of like, almost like the before and after of my life, kind of almost like the center point of my life. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Psalms of uh, lament uh, during this, these couple of months, because I, I finally understood, you know, when David said, oh Lord, you know, destroy my enemies. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I feel like that. That's what I want too. You know, why are they doing this to me? Or crying out, why, why are my enemies doing this to me? You know, I'm like, I get that now. So I spent a lot of times in the, uh, in the Psalms of lament and I was sitting on my patio one day and I had just kind of finished some time, uh, in one of those Psalms. And then I was just sitting there kind of quietly. And I started thinking through all the worst case scenarios of what could happen. Uh, I thought about, you know, I thought, man, I could lose my job. Um, and I did eventually. And I thought I could lose my ordination, right? As a pastor, I could lose my reputation. And all of my colleagues, my fellow pastors and people in my church and stuff would think that I was guilty of this thing that I'm not actually guilty of. You know, I kind of thought, man, I could lose my family if it looks like I'm guilty. I don't think I actually would have, but my mind was going into all these dark places, right? I thought I could, I could, if it's child pornography that they're ex like exploring or investigating, I was like, I, I could become a registered sex offender. And everywhere I go, 
I would I would have to announce this thing about me that isn't actually even true. And people would believe this thing about me. And then I thought, man, I could go to prison if it looks like I'm guilty. And so I had, right, so I, my mind was just spiraling, spiraling down into darkness. And I just sort of had this image of myself sitting all by myself, having lost everything, just sitting in a prison cell. And as I had this picture in my mind, all of a sudden it was like I I felt like God say to me, yes, Marcus, they might take everything from you, but the one thing they can never take from you is my love. And I was like, oh, right. And all of a sudden, it's like I, I understood God's love in a whole new way, right? When everything else is stripped away from you, nobody can take that, right? Nobody can take God's love away from me. It, is, it will always be me be mine. I will always be God's beloved. And so that was, right, when I think of my life, I, I think of it as before that moment and after that moment. Uh, that's the moment when God's love became really alive for me. Now I'll kind of uh, kind of tell you what happened <laughs> after all that. Um, it turned out that, uh, so the it turned out that the FBI had had my laptop. I couldn't believe it. And they eventually returned my laptop. They said, there's nothing here. We haven't found any evidence of any, you know, anything. Um, and the person who happened to be a staff person at the church did not like that outcome. And because they had not filed formal allegations, they now had the opportunity to do so. And they did. And that started a whole second investigation. This was probably like August at this point. Like it started in May got through the first investigation by the end of July and then early August, the second investigation. And at first I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, I thought we were done. I thought this was it. I thought, you know, I was going to have to go through this anymore. And then kind of as the day progressed, I just started having this peace where I was like, you know what? God got, got me through it before. He'll get me through it again. And so anyway, so it, it started this investigation and, um, uh, you know, this investigative committee from the presbytery interviewed lots of people. They looked at what had been learned in this first secret investigation, but, and in the end, they concluded that there was no evidence to support the allegations. And so they closed that investigation. And, and the person who had made the allegations just would not let up. And so then she made those same allegations to the elders at our church. So far, she'd been trying to go above, you know, the heads, so to speak, of our church. And now she go, goes to the elders. And so, so we had a conversation about it. I, only a couple of the elders knew about everything that had been going on. And, uh, and so we had a meeting and uh, I had my friend, uh, Kevin, who was my accountability partner, come to that meeting. And he's like, hey, I can give you... Uh, years worth of accountability reports, if you want to see that. We had a new executive presbyter by this point, and he had had to kind of take up the role of managing all of this stuff. And he came and he said, you know what, as far as the presbytery is concerned, this is a closed matter. And then I had a detailed chronology of everything. I was At one point, I was like, I just need to start keeping track of what's happening here <laughs> just to be safe. And so I read them the full chronology. Uh, my friend and I recused ourselves from that meeting for about half an hour, came back in, and like the spokesperson for our elders said to me, Marcus, we want you to know that you have our trust as our pastor. I was like, whoa. I mean, I didn't re react that way out loud, but inside I'm like, what are you amazing? Wow. And I, I felt so um, relieved. Right. And he said, and uh, we're not going to ask for your resignation, which had been suggested. And he said, um, we're going to brace for a lawsuit from this particular other person. 
And um, I was like, wow, thank you. You know, and um, I was so relieved and I thought, good Lord, thank you. Finally, we can move on. Finally, we can move on. And maybe we could have, except that one of the elders, for whatever reason, decided that she was going to believe those accusations. And she started calling people in our church saying things like, Pastor Marcus is into child pornography. And the rest of us didn't know that this was happening at first and for about two weeks. And then when we found out that this was happening, I was like, well, I think that's it for me. I think I'm, a, I'm, I'm about done here because it is really like, how do you come back from those kinds of suspicions, right? And, uh, and then there was a congregational meeting and uh, I ended up getting voted out of that church by a margin of two votes. I don't know that everyone believed the allegations. I think some people were like, I don't know what to believe. Let's just play it safe and get a new pastor, you know, but, and, and by that point, um, I was kind of ready to go. It was actually a relief when, when I found out that, you know, cause I had stepped out while they had took the vote. And when I found out, I was like, oh, okay, good. That's fine. And interestingly, it's like God knew that this was going to happen because God knows these kinds of things. <laughs> the very next morning on a Monday morning, I was on a plane to Little Rock, Arkansas for pastor's retreat that had been on my calendar for six months already. Right. And, uh, and so it was just a very healing. I was like, thank you, Lord, for sending me here, you know, the day after I get voted out of this church. So, uh, the story continues, but I'll, why don't I pause there and see if I have any uh, thoughts or questions. I've got a couple of questions. The first yeah. is what happened to the staff member that ultimately accused you and yeah. it, in, it, I should say accused you twice mm -hmm. that led to the informal or secretive investigation and then subsequently yep. the formal investigation, both of which you were exonerated yep. from. So whatever happened to her? Yeah. Um, so at a certain point when it became clear, when I found out who it was, Oh, and you know what? And I'll share with you. Um, I found out why as well, why she made these allegations. You know, I would meet with our staff, but each person, each staff person every other week or so. And so at one of those one-on-one -on -one meetings with her, she told me about her husband uh, having a, a problem with pornography. And if, later on, as all this was happening, one of the other staff members came to me and said, yeah, so-and-so said, um, she said, you know, I told Pastor Marcus about my husband's pornography problem, and he just didn't react the way I thought he would. I bet he's got a problem with that, too. Um, so something triggered her. I don't know what it was. But I don't, you know, uh, so she stayed on staff for a while. Uh, she was not relieved or anything like that. Um, she's not there anymore. I know that uh, just from the website. Every now and then I'll go you know, check the church website. Um, and I saw that she was no no longer there. It's unfortunate there was never a reconciliation, but I would say that I have forgiven her by this point. And that was a process for me. You know, that took some time, but I don't have, like when I talk about it now, I don't, I don't have like anger or anything towards her. I know that she has, she, she had shared with me, you know, she had some abuse in her past. And so I'm sure something triggered her and it caused a lot of pain for me. <laughs> Do you think ultimately getting voted out by the congregation was inevitable in the sense that the nature of the allegations were so severe, it almost left the 
congregation with no choice, if for no other reason, that a percentage of the congregation would yep. have lost faith and confidence in you as their pastor. Yep. And who knows, maybe maybe that faction of the congregation would yep. have left, which would have compromised the integrity of the church itself. What's your general yep. impression of that? I, I mean, I think at a certain point, it, it did become inevitable. Kinda, you know, I, well, the reason I say that is because um, there was some recruiting going on to get people who hadn't attended in a long time to come come to this meeting. Now, they weren't all members, and so they couldn't all vote. But some, even though they hadn't been to church in a year and a half, you know, came to this meeting and and voted. So, so, uh, so maybe not a hundred percent inevitable, but in a sense, inevitable in terms of what needed to happen, I think. Uh, when I say that is maybe it needed to happen for the church. It was inevitable for them, but also it needed to happen for me um, by this point. I I would have been in a very ugly place internally, you know, and, and in terms of uh, the church itself, had I not gotten voted out, like had I, had I survived the vote by two votes, I think it would have just, it wouldn't have been good for anybody. And uh, especially, I think not for me at that point. Yeah. How was the relationship with your wife as you navigated this time period? Yeah. You had referenced the initial meeting that you had where the allegations came out that your wife was with you. Yeah, I can yeah, only yeah. imagine that both of you were completely yeah. shocked. How was, how was she throughout this process? Yeah, she was great. So she knew that I had an accountability relationship with someone and that I had accountability software on my devices, right? And so she didn't have any concern, you know, about me. And so when the the allegations came, uh, we sat there together on one couch, the others who came sat on the other couch and, uh, you know, we were, we were in it together. Um, and so she was very supportive the whole time. She was one of the ones that was interviewed by the investigative committee during the official investigation, the second one. Yeah. And so I was really grateful for her through that whole, that whole time. Um, and she sat with me, we, there was a, when the second investigation started, there was sort of a, a meeting with a couple of folks from the presbytery because they had to decide, do I, do they put me on administrative leave based on the nature of the allegations? Right. And they decided not to, because there actually wasn't any firsthand evidence of anything. The person making the accusation didn't say, oh, Marcus did this or this or this. Anyway, so she came to me, it came with me to that. And so it was, it was good as, as far as it is, you know, and, and given the circumstances, I, I'm very grateful for her to walk with me through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. What did this process teach you about surrender? Oh, everything, <laughs> everything that, I mean, surrender was the only thing I could do uh, during that time. I had no control, right, over anything. One of the things that I kind of learned, there were a number of very stressful moments and meetings throughout this process. And and I I I just sort of learned I, I can't control what happens in these meetings. I I can't control what they think about me. 
I mean, if I can control anything, it's just like what I think, what I'm thinking. And, and if I take any actions, that's all I can, all I can control, but I can't control anything else. And so it really, the whole, the whole thing became an exercise in surrender. And I, I learned surrender for sure in a, in a way I had never known it before. I remember going into, I think it was the congregational meeting, or we had one other meeting prior to that, a little bit more informational, where we just came clean with the uh, congregation. Here's everything that has taken place over the past year. And then it was like the following week that they voted me out. But I remember the night before that meeting, the, the, the kind of informational one, I just had this sense of, you know what? It's in my future right now, and then tomorrow it'll be in my past. That was sort of my thing. It's in my future, and then it'll be in the past. And whatever happens is up to God, right? I can't control the outcome of this meeting. I can control anything that anybody does. Lord, you got me, and uh, and you've gotten me this far. I mean, that's the that's that's the beauty of surrender. That's the gift of surrender is when you let go, and God brings you through whatever it is that you're going through even if there's pain involved, which there was, it is such a faith building experience, right? All of a sudden you come through and you're like, oh, I trust you more now than I did before, right? And so anyway, so surrender was was huge uh, in this whole experience and learning learnings to surrender. Along the same lines of surrender, yeah. one of the things that resonates with me is this idea of allowing or allowance and you had referenced earlier that you felt as though you didn't deserve to be loved, mm. whether it was through conditioning and programming yourself through negative self-talk or yeah. how you I interpreted how to accept God's love or not. Along with surrender, what did you learn about allowance with respect to allowing God to love you, allowing other people to love you. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the books that was most formative for me during that time. So uh, at the very beginning, I was on a sabbatical, right? And so I actually had a list of some books to read. And they were, again, by the grace of God, exactly what I needed. Henry Nowen, Life of the Beloved, Brennan Manning, Abba's Child, um, uh, David Benner, Surrender to Love, and then Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. That was one. Shame and Grace by uh, Lewis Meads. So I, I was reading all these really powerful books about, uh, about being God's beloved, really, and, and embracing that reality, right? So anyway, it's it's interesting the way you phrase the question, you know, what did I learn about allowing God to love me and allowing, is that, is, would that be fair how I'm rephrasing that or phrase the paraphrase that allowing God to love me? Yeah. And you, you had referenced your friend, Kevin, and yeah, yeah. the lengths to which yeah. he went to provide yeah. you support both yeah. as your friend in a, in a loving way, but also actually yeah. taking action on your behalf. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I juxtapose that with God yeah. taking action on yeah, your behalf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. very often it, it seems as though 
whenever we hold a particular view of ourselves, we offer resistance mm -hmm. and disallow, yep. in this yep. case, the love from yeah. God, love from other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the word allow kind of threw me a little bit because I, I can't stop God from loving me. I can't stop anybody from loving me, right? People love me. My wife loves me. My kids love me. My parents love me. Uh, friends who love me, right? God loves me. Nothing I can do can stop God from loving me. And so in terms of allowing, it's really like I would want to use a word more like surrender, you know? I, I want to surrender to that love. One of the images that David Benner uses in his book, Surrender to Love, he said, the way you receive God's love, the way you open yourself up to God's love is not working at it. You don't work at opening yourself up to God's love. He says, it's like a lazy river at the water park, you know? I mean, you can paddle your way as fast as you can through a lazy river, but that's not that's not how it's meant to be experienced, right? The way you experience a lazy river is you just lay in your inner tube and you float, right? You just float. And uh, where it takes you, it takes you. And he says, that's, that's how it is with God's love. You just lay back and you just receive, right? You just receive the gift of, of love. And I do think that we have to have some experiences kind of like, I mean, in my case, it was the one that I had, right? Experiences that really make it clear, right? The kind of love that God has for us. I was just talking to someone this morning who had been a hospice chaplain and now works in the wine industry in central California. And for him, it was, it was a difficult transition and things didn't go well in his chaplaincy kind of work. He realized he wasn't exactly cut out for that. And he just had this moment as he was driving towards like Solvang or something because he loved that place. Um, and he felt he was beating himself up. And then he just had this sense of, of being perfectly loved, right? So for him, that was that moment. And I think we need those kinds of experiences that almost, I don't want to say compel, but like really almost kind of, we have no choice I mean, we can block, close ourselves off or we can open ourselves up, right? A lot of times we do close ourselves off. We protect ourselves when things get uncomfortable, when we when things are, are not going well, um, and we try to control, right? And in those times, right, we can close ourselves off from God's love. But if we can just surrender, as we were saying earlier, and open ourselves up to God's love, I mean, that changes everything. In a way, when you do that, it almost doesn't matter what the outcome is, right? I had a bad outcome. I, I'm not, I don't like the outcome that we had. You know, I got voted out and uh, people, some people probably still believe these things about me, but it doesn't matter. Like, it's like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, because the only thing that matters is that I am God's beloved, right? And we got away from the the allowing uh, idea, but but maybe not, you know, it's just, I've learned to sit back relax, say, okay, Lord, I receive your love. I am, I am your beloved. I like that metaphor of the lazy river because yeah. it speaks yeah. to me in the sense that when we don't fight it, where we don't try to swim upstream, we're actually mm -hmm. going with the perfect flow of life. That's right. And sometimes as part of the perfect flow of life, and the word perfect confuses people here with what I'm going to ask mm -hmm. you, Part of the perfect flow of life includes suffering. Yeah. So how yep. can we experience suffering and end up finding our 
way to the other side of that the suffering in a healthier way. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's paradoxical, but I think, I think we need suffering. Now that doesn't mean I want people to suffer. I don't want to suffer, uh, but it's going to happen, right? Uh, suffering just happens. Some people suffer a lot. Some people maybe not so much, but everybody suffers. And, um, and I think we have a choice when suffering comes, uh, again, to either to try to keep it at arm's length, push it out, try to control circumstances so that we don't suffer. But if there's some kind of great loss, you know, if you, you lose a loved one, you lose your health, you lose a job, you lose whatever it might be. I mean, you can try to keep it away, but you have to open yourself up to the experience of that grief and that loss. You have to feel all the feelings, right? Uh, and if you don't, they right, they, they fester. They they're still there. They're just buried. If you can allow yourself to feel all the feelings, and sometimes you need help with that. Maybe you need a good friend who can kind of walk with you through that, or a therapist, or a counselor of some kind, or a spiritual director, someone who can walk with you through that. And I had a great therapist during that time, and and I'm so grateful. But if you can go through all the emotions of that loss, of that grief. That will bring you through in a much healthier way, right? Because the danger is you get through it, but then you're angry and bitter and cynical, right? But if you come through it in a healthy way and you do process all the things, if you, you process the, the anger, right? The, the sadness, the, um, the fear, the anxiety, and, um, and you go through those, then you can come through without bitterness, uh, without anger. Yeah, yeah. Marcus, what did you learn about yourself going through that process mm -hmm. that you didn't know about yourself previously or never acknowledged before? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'll, I'll say a couple things. Um, so the first and most important thing is what I've been saying already. The, what I learned through all of this is the most important thing about me is that I'm God's beloved. doesn't matter if I'm a pastor or not a pastor, doesn't matter if I'm married or not married, doesn't matter if I have kids or no kids, doesn't matter, you know, where I live, nothing. What it does, I don't need to achieve anything. I don't need to accomplish anything. I don't need to look successful. And I wanted to look successful. And that's one of the things this, this experience did was it stripped me of the need to look successful. And so I learned that that's the most important thing about me is that I'm God's beloved. And the other thing that comes to mind as I think about this is, is I learned that I can, I can get through hard things, not alone. Right. Or maybe I should say um, that when I go through hard things, because I know that God's with me, I can get through them. There've been other hard things. There's all, you know, my dad had a stroke a few weeks, a uh, couple months ago now. And uh, so walking through that with, with my parents is, is, you know, it's hard. It's a challenge but we can get through it, you know, and, um, and even, even, uh, you know, going into other, uh, other churches now, I didn't actually think I'd ever go back to being a pastor again, but anyway, there's another story there. We may not have time for that, but I, I tiptoed back into ministry and, um, and there's still a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, but one of the things that it has done 
this experience is it made it clear to me what exactly my job is. My job is not to make my church a bigger church. You know, it's not to get more people to show up on Sunday mornings. It's not to get them to give more money. Uh, it's not to, you know, build a nice building or make it look really impressive so that people will, oh, let's go to that church. You know, that's not the, that's not my job. My job is to help people know that they are God's beloved. Henry Nouwen in his book, um, um, Life of the Beloved, he said, when you, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, when you find yourself to be God's beloved, it's like all you want is for everybody else to know that they're God's beloved too. And I was like, yep, that is, that's what I want now. So, um, right. So just clarified that for me. That's my job. I'm not, I'm not there to try to beat people up. I'm not there to, uh, I'm not even there to try to convince them to believe the same things that I believe. My job is just to help them, if anything, to believe that they are God's beloved and that's it. And, and then God will take care of the rest. If they need to get better theology or something, yeah, okay, fine. We'll get there. But that's not my job. I'm not trying to... The, the only good theology I want people to have is God loves you and there's nothing you can do to stop him from loving you. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. One final question for you, Marcus. I referenced in the opening that in 2021, you published your first book mm -hmm. beyond thingification, helping yeah. the church engage in God's mission. What was the inspiration for that? And walk me through what thingification is. Yeah. So thingification uh, is a word I came across in a book I, I read at one point. I think actually I learned later my um, Martin Luther King Jr. I think coined the phrase, but the whole idea is in our churches, I think we have a tendency to thingify people, meaning think of them as, as things or objects. So we use language like giving units. How many giving units are in your church? Well, that's thingifying language. It's objectifying language, right? Um, how many baptisms? How many new members, right? And of course, we care about the people, but we tend to use thingifying language. And we do the same when it comes to people in our neighborhoods and communities as well. Um, you know, we look at people who live in our neighborhoods and, oh, they're all potential church members. Now, maybe we do ministry to serve them in some way, but it's almost like there's always this kind of hidden motive of, and let's try to get them to come to church on Sunday because that's the most important thing, you know? And so, um, so the book itself um, kind of addresses that. It, it, it addresses it addresses the fact that God works through everything that we do, uh, our work, all of our work, meaning our um, our, our vocations at you know our jobs, our our vocations as parents and spouses and neighbors and citizens. Right, all of these are ways through which God can work to restore shalom in the world. I love the word shalom because it refers to a comprehensive state of well-being that touches every aspect of life. And, and that's what God wants to restore in the world. And so the subtitle is helping, helping your church engage in uh, God's mission, right? God's mission is to restore shalom in the world. And so one of the ways we do that is by stop thingifying people, see them as human beings, and and listen to them, right? Really listen. Um, and so anyway, so the, the second part of the book, I, I present sort of a, a framework for how to discover what, what is God already doing in your neighborhood? And then how might you join God? Not, don't try to come up with something brand new necessarily, but what's God already doing? And then how can you join God in what God's already doing? So that's kind of the gist of the book. Love it. Where can listeners pick that up? 
Uh, Amazon. It's on Amazon. Yeah, that's a great way place to find it. Yep. And it's Marcus Watson, M-A-R-K-U-S-W-A-T-S-O-N. Marcus, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking time to have this conversation. Before we wrap up, would you mind praying us out? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that we are your beloved. And thank you that, that that is the most important thing that's true of any of us. And it is, it is hard to believe in some ways. And so I, I pray that um, you would just be at work uh, in each of our lives um, to help us, help us believe, really believe that, right? That, uh, that our belovedness is the single most important thing about each of us. Um, and if that means going through hard times, which it very well might, um, Lord, we just pray that you would give us the strength and the perseverance to go through those hard times. Thank you that you've promised to never leave us, never forsake us, uh, to always be with us. And we are so grateful for that. And, um, and so thank you, Lord. Thank you for walking with us through every, every challenge and just continue to draw us close to you, we pray. Uh, make us into uh, the people that, that you created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Marcus, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Ed. God bless. You can contact the show at itsnotmycredittotake.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless.